0: Hi there, and welcome to 45 RPM Music of the 40s and 50s. I'm your host, Sam Waldron. Today, we're going to listen to 10 songs you probably know and explore the stories behind them. I promise you this, we'll have an interesting hour. that includes jazz, big band music, a couple of country songs, a famous folk song, and three recordings that helped usher in rock and roll in the 1950s. So let's get started with one of those. Ever since the 50s, there have been a lot of competing views of where rock and roll came from. Some people say the start was Louis Jordan on stage in the 1940s. Some give the credit to Chuck Berry and his guitar. Was it Little Richard as he pounded on the piano, or was it Elvis Presley swiveling his hips, and driving the audiences wild. Well, here's the story of another rock and roll pioneer, one who seemed pretty unlikely for that part. Now picture, if you will, a square-looking country singer wearing a gray suit and tie, playing an old-fashioned acoustic guitar. Behind him were backup musicians dressed the same way, one playing a big upright string bass, another playing an accordion The group's leader had started out in the late 40s trying to carve out a niche for himself. He started doing Swiss yodeling. He came to be known as Silver Yodeling Bill. In the 1950s, audiences knew him as Bill Haley and his group as The Comets. In the early 50s, they started fusing the sounds of rhythm and blues with country music into a new form that gradually evolved into rock and roll. The group came up with a song called Rock Around the Clock, and they took it to Decca Records. Their manager thought Bill Haley and the Comets might turn into a good replacement for Louis Jordan, who had just left the label. He told them they could record Rock Around the Clock on one condition. It would be the B-side of a record that would be headlined by a Louis Jordan style song called 13 Women and Only One Man in Town. The recording session seemed like a disaster. The band showed up late, they had only three hours to record both songs, Thirteen Women came first, and it took up two and a half of those three hours. Here's a little bit of that song so you get a feel for it.
1: Last night I was dreaming, dreamed about the H-bomb. Well, the bomber went off and the high was caught. I was the only man on the ground. There was a thirteen women and only one man in town. And only one man in town. And as funny as it may be, the one and only man in town is me. With thirteen women, me the only man. bought me a diamond ring, about forty carats I suppose Well thirteen women and only one man in town There was a thirteen women and only one man in town It was something I can't forget, because I think of those
0: Okay, that will give you an idea. Back in the studio, with just 30 minutes left to record Rock Around the Clock, the lead guitarist of the Comets was still trying to figure out the song. The musicians finally did a good take, but it was so loud, it drowned out Bill Haley. The engineers quickly sent the band out of the room, and as the clock was running out, they did a recording with just Bill Haley singing. The next day, those engineers painstakingly pulled off what seemed like a miracle. As they mixed these two tapes, the process required them to physically cut and splice pieces of magnetic tape just to make the timing come out right. The record had only modest success until 1955, when Rock Around the Clock became part of the soundtrack of a movie called Blackboard Jungle about juvenile delinquents in a big city high school. After the movie came out, Rock Around the Clock sold more than a million copies for Bill Haley and the Comets.
1: One, two, three o'clock, four o'clock, rock. Five, six, seven o'clock, eight o'clock, rock. Nine, ten, eleven o'clock, twelve o'clock, rock. We're gonna rock around the clock tonight. What's your bad, on? Join me home. We'll have some fun when the clock strikes We're gonna rock around.
0: Since it was released more than 60 years ago, Bill Haley's Rock Around the Clock has been translated into dozens of languages and sold tens of millions of records around the world. Not bad for a funny-looking cowboy singer who once thought he could make it big by yodeling. Next, I want to take a look at the story behind the best-selling jazz single of the 20th century, which almost seemed like an afterthought when it was recorded. Take 5 by the Dave Brubeck Quartet started when Brubeck told a TV host that jazz had lost some of the luster of its early days. Brubeck said, It's time jazz musicians go back to their original role of leading the public into more adventurous rhythms. Then he decided to lead the way. In 1958, Brubeck started thinking about doing a whole album of entirely original music. That idea spooked the Columbia Records marketing department. Brubeck told an interviewer later that Columbia didn't want all that originality. You just weren't supposed to do that. They wanted you to do standard Broadway shows and love songs and the hits of the day. The album did get released in 1960, but only because Columbia Records president Goddard Liebertson intervened. Brubeck remembers hearing Lieberson say, We don't need another copy of Stardust or Body and Soul. It's about time somebody did something like this. Late in the design phase of the album, Brubeck decided to add something different in 5-4 time. He took two main ideas from alto saxophonist Paul Desmond and he put them together. They recorded take five in just two takes. Desmond thought it was so bad he joked that his share of the royalties someday might be enough to buy a new electric shaver. But Dave Brubeck persisted. Columbia Records released the album in 1959. Almost immediately, it sold out. Take 5 was later released as a single, and its sales took off like a rocket. Let's take 5 now and listen for ourselves. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you. The Dave Brubeck Quartet and Take Five. Forty years later, Brubeck said he still couldn't put his finger on exactly what made that song such a success. It just worked, he said. You know, if anyone could ever predict what's going to be a big seller like that, my God, they'd be driving around in Rolls Royces, you know, living in castles. You're listening to 45 RPM, music of the 40s and 50s. I'm your host, Sam Waldron, today bringing you the stories behind some very successful songs from the 20th century. Now, here's the story of Give My Regards to Broadway, a song that was written and first performed by George M. Cohen in his Broadway musical Little Johnny Jones in 1904. The show was not very successful, but the song, well, it's become a ragtime hit, a march, a sing-along, and a sort of musical salute to New York City and the USA. The song appears in the second act of the play as Little Johnny Jones, played by George M. Cohen, is standing at the Southampton Pier in England. He's an American jockey. He's just lost a race riding a horse named Yankee Doodle Dandy, and the authorities think he threw the race in cahoots with some crooked gamblers. Little Johnny Jones is homesick, afraid he won't be allowed to sail back to New York. He sings the song as a sad lament to his pals back home. But the bad guys are rounded up, Little Johnny is exonerated, and as the final curtain goes up, George M. Cohen sings the song in an up-tempo mood. You can hear this song in a 1942 movie called Yankee Doodle Dandy that's on TV every 4th of July. James Cagney won an Academy Award for his portrayal of George M. Cohen in the movie, and he always said the happiest moment in his whole performing life was that closing scene when he sings Give My Regards to Broadway. In the movie, it sounds like this.
2: Give my regards to Broadway. Remember me to Herald Square. Tell all the gang at 42nd Street that I will soon be there. Whisper of how I'm yearning to mingle with that old-time fraud. Give my regards to old Broadway and say that I'll be there ere long. We'll get
3: your
0: James Cagney, and Give My Regards to Broadway. Now, here's a story I found pretty interesting. Back in the 1940s and the early 50s, Gene Autry was an extremely popular figure, in the same league, I think, as Judy Garland and Bing Crosby. Gene Autry's recordings dominated the country charts, often crossed over into the pop charts. He was a star on the radio and TV, and he made 93 cowboy movies. This is the story of what became his signature song. It started about 4.30 one morning in 1938. Ray Whiteley had been writing some songs for an upcoming cowboy movie and in the wee hours his phone rang. He took the call and a few minutes later stumbled back to bed. His wife said, who in the world was calling? He told her, well, I'm back in the saddle again. He said the movie producers wanted one more song and they needed it by 8 o'clock that same morning. His wife said well you have a good title he asked her what that meant she said back in the saddle again so Whitley sat on the side of the bed and he wrote the first eight lines of the song then he said to his wife when we get to the studio I'll put in a whoopie tie yo and a whoopie tie-yea maybe a yodel and we'll have a song Gene Autry wasn't in that movie but he liked the song back in the saddle again he thought it reflected his singing cowboy view of the West Autry recorded the song and then in 1941, he used its title as the title of a movie, Back in the Saddle. Back in the Saddle again became Gene Autry's theme song on his radio and TV shows, and he sang it in many subsequent motion pictures.
4: Back in the saddle again, whoopie tie, I oh, rocking to and fro. Back in the saddle again, whoopie tie, I yeah, I go my way. Back in the saddle again. Back in the saddle again. Whoopee tie, I, oh, rocking to and fro. Back in the saddle again. Whoopee tie, I, yay, I go my way. Back in the saddle again.
0: Gene Autry with a famous song that was written in just a few minutes early one morning in 1938. I'm Sam Waldron, bringing you this special edition of 45 RPM, Music of the 40s and 50s. Today, we're visiting the stories behind some really interesting popular music. We started today's show with a story about Bill Haley and the Comets and their early rock and roll hit, Rock Around the Clock. John Lennon once said, if you tried to give rock and roll another name, you might have called it Chuck Berry. Now, here's part of the story behind that remark. In 1955, Chuck Berry was a 29-year-old singer-songwriter who was experimenting with adding white country elements to the blues and R&B songs that he'd been performing in St. Louis, where he was also studying to be a hairdresser. In May that year, Barry and his band were invited up to Chicago to the studio of Chess Records. They laid down some tracks, including one that Leonard Chess, the owner of the record label, especially liked. It was a variation of an old country song and they needed a name for it. They were stumped until one of the band members looked up on the windowsill and saw a mascara box with the name Maybelline written on it. Leonard Chess said, why don't we name the damn thing Maybelline? It took an exhausting 36 takes to get the song recorded just right, and a few weeks later, Chess released it. Just as he had predicted, it was a hit. In New York City one night, disc jockey Alan Freed played Maybelline for two hours straight, and in the South, an obscure young singer named Elvis Presley started singing the song at his gigs. Maybelline quickly rose to number one on the R&B chart and made it to number five on the more prestigious pop chart. Chuck Berry's career took off, eventually included a bunch of big hits including Roll Over Beethoven, Sweet Little Sixteen, and Johnny Be Good. But there were some hiccups along the way. Although Berry was black, he worked hard to make his music sound white. He was so successful that he and his band once showed up to perform a concert in Knoxville, Tennessee, only to be turned away at the door because the concert was a white event. The musicians went out to the parking lot and they listened to their music being performed by a white replacement band. Here's what that concert audience missed, Chuck Berry and Maybelline.
5: Be true, Oh, Maybelline, why can't you be true? You done started doing the things you used to do. As I was motivating over the hill, I saw Maybelline in a coupe-de-ville. A Cadillac rolling on an open road, nothing outrun run my V-A-4. A Cadillac doing about 95 we bumper-to-bumper rolling side-to-side. Maybelline, why can't you be true? Oh, Maybelline, why can't you be true? You done started back doing the thing you used to do. A Cadillac pulled up to 104. but foe got hot and wouldn't do no more. The gun got a cloud and started to rain. I tooted my horn for the passing lane. Rain water blowing all under my hood. I knew that I was doing my motor good. Maybelline, why can't you be true? Oh, Maybelline, why can't you be true? You done started back doing the thing you
0: Chuck Berry and his big hit Maybelline, named for the brand of a box of mascara that just happened to be in the recording studio. Still ahead, the stories behind a mega hit written by George Gershwin, a huge country hit for Patsy Cline, a famous folk song, and Elvis Presley's best-selling record of all time. I'm your host, Sam Waldron. Today we're telling stories behind some important songs. Now we turn to a piece of music that's not quite classical, not quite jazz, not quite anything, but it sure is popular. Symphony orchestras all over the world have learned they can always please their audiences with George Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue. But when this music was first performed at a big deal concert in 1924, it got very mixed reviews. A few months earlier, band leader Paul Whiteman asked Gershwin to write something for an upcoming jazz concert That he described as experimental. Gershwin said no, he wouldn't have enough time. But a few weeks later, Gershwin was playing billiards one evening when he learned that the New York Tribune had just published an article saying he was writing a jazz concerto for the upcoming concert, which was now just three weeks away. On the phone with band leader Whiteman the next morning, Gershwin finally agreed to write something. He wrote out the main ideas on two sheets of paper while he was on a train to Boston. He later told an interviewer he had imagined the piece as a musical kaleidoscope of America and what he called its metropolitan madness. The concert was held in New York City and was called An Experiment in Modern Music. The audience included some big-deal musicians with names like Rachmaninoff, Stravinsky, Stokowski, and John Philip Sousa, as well as a bunch of highbrow classical music critics. Bandleader Paul Whiteman told the audience ahead of time, the music they were about to hear was designed to make it easy for the public to start enjoying classical music and operas. Gershwin's contribution came late in the program, number 25 out of 26 pieces. By then, the audience was tired and on the verge of being bored. The theater's ventilation system was broken, and people just wanted to be done with it. Then 25-year-old George Gershwin walked onto the stage sat down at the piano and gave a signal. That was the cue for a clarinetist to stand up and start off with something totally unexpected, which we can hear in this 1920s recording with Gershwin on piano and Paul Whiteman's band. opening had been introduced in rehearsals as sort of a joke, but Gershwin liked it and eventually it became as familiar as the opening four notes of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. Most of the people in the audience loved Rhapsody in Blue, but the critics didn't think much of it and music professors turned up their noses. However, for something written in just three weeks by a 25-year-old, Rhapsody in Blue did pretty well. Paul Whiteman's band adopted it as the theme song for their radio programs. At the opening ceremony of the 1984 Summer Olympics in Los Angeles, Rhapsody in Blue was played simultaneously by 84 pianists. When the music publishing house ASCAP made a list of the 25 most performed songs of the 20th century, Rhapsody in Blue was right up there with Happy Birthday and White Christmas. So now, it's time to stop talking and start listening. From an album called Classical Music for People Who Hate Classical Music, here's Arthur Fiedler conducting the Boston Pops Orchestra. George Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue. You're listening to 45 RPM, music of the 40s and 50s. I'm your host, Sam Waldron. Today we're focusing on the stories behind some famous songs. Elvis Presley's biggest hit record of all time was called Hound Dog. Hound Dog was on the record's A side, and Don't Be Cruel on the B side was also a smash hit. The two songs quickly rose to the top of the Billboard 100 and made it clear that something revolutionary was happening in popular music. Teenagers in 1956 might have thought that Hound Dog materialized out of thin air, but it had a history before Elvis found it. The song was written in less than 15 minutes on the back of a paper bag by two 19-year-olds, Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller. They were white Jewish teenagers who wrote songs mostly for black artists. They wrote Hound Dog for a blues singer named Big Mama Thornton. Lieber and Stoller thought it would take advantage of her guttural, growling singing voice. Their lyrics are meant to be sung by a woman who's throwing a gigolo out of her house and her life, including the lines, You've been wagging your tail, but I ain't gonna feed you no more. Let's interrupt our story to listen to her 1953 recording, which sold half a million copies, and rose to number one on the Rhythm and Blues chart. we Big Mama Thornton, and her 1953 recording of Hound Dog. Hound Dog was considered unsuitable for white audiences until a Las Vegas performing group named Freddie Bell and the Bell Boys rewrote the lyrics in 1955 to sanitize the raunchy part. That turned it into a song that was actually about a dog and that would be accepted by radio stations that catered to white people. This is where Elvis Presley comes into the story. When Elvis was doing his very first gig in Las Vegas in 1956, he took in the Bell Boys show, and he liked Hound Dog. He liked it so much, in fact, he kept going back again and again until he learned the words in the chords. Elvis decided to add Hound Dog to his own show as a bit of comic relief, and it went over well with his musicians and audiences. Later that year, Presley sang the song for a nationwide TV audience on the Milton Berle show, and a few weeks later on the Steve Allen show. The next afternoon, Elvis and his gang recorded Hound Dog along with two other songs in a seven-hour session, and the rest is history. Presley's Hound Dog sold 10 million copies around the world. It was number one on the Billboard 100 for 11 straight weeks, a record that stood for 36 years. Now, I want to share the story behind one of the most popular jukebox records of the 20th century. It became a signature song for the legendary Patsy Cline, even though it seemed like she was resisting it every step of the way. Patsy's husband, Charlie, heard the song in a bar one night, decided she should hear it. The song had been written and recorded on a minor label by Hugh Nelson, who met Charlie a few days later and agreed to sell him a copy. Charlie kept Patsy up half the night listening to the record, but she didn't think much of it. Patsy was twenty-eight years old; she'd finally landed the job she'd wanted all her life, being in the cast of the grand old Opry. She wanted to be a traditional country singer, and this new song just seemed to make the singer sound too vulnerable and heartbroken but a record producer named Owen Bradley had other ideas. He thought the song was just right for the way that Patsy could give listeners a window into her soul, every bit as believably as a neighbor who poured her heart out over a cup of coffee. Bradley wanted to create a new form of country music, and he brought in the Jordanaires who had backed some of Elvis Presley's records. Bradley devoted a whole recording session with multiple takes to laying down the background sound without Patsy. Patsy was not a happy camper. She didn't like the idea of four male vocals competing with her. She didn't like the song's slow pace, and she was pretty fed up with producer Owen Bradley. Some music historians think that's one reason Patsy poured so much emotion into the song when she came into the studio the next week and recorded it in just one take, which was rare then and is pretty much unheard of these days. The result turned into a gold record almost immediately. Now you might have noticed I haven't told you the name of this song. Here's Patsy Cline to Save Me the Trouble.
4: Love me
6: as long as you want me.
3: thinking that my
0: Crazy by Patsy Cline. I mentioned that that song was written by a guy named Hugh Nelson. He later changed his name to Willie Nelson. Our last story this hour is really two stories. The recording we're going to hear starts like this. Throughout history, there have been many songs written about the eternal triangle. This is the story of a Mr. Grayson, a beautiful woman, and a condemned man named Tom Dooley. When the sun rises tomorrow... Tom Dooley Must Hang. That's how the Kingston Trio started what became their very first hit record. The group had recorded lots of folk songs, and suddenly in 1958, one of their recordings caught the attention of two disc jockeys in Salt Lake City. The two DJs started playing the record over and over. They called some other DJs around the country, told them they thought this record was catchy, and said something profound. They said, get on this. Bob Shane, One of the original members of the Kingston Trio recalled that one day we were playing at a club in Hawaii and the next day we were in a ticker tape parade at Salt Lake City. Soon the three young folk singers were on the cover of Life magazine. The second story is the true story of a real person named Tom Dooley who lived in rural North Carolina. He was young and good looking when he came home from being a Confederate soldier in the Civil War. A few years later, Dooley's lover, Laura Foster, was murdered, and folks believed that Tom had done the deed and then fled to Tennessee. Dooley was tried, convicted, and hanged. The song's lyrics imply that he hung from a white oak tree down in some lonesome valley, but a professor who's written a book about the case says Dooley was actually put to death on a gallows outside a courthouse. The Kingston Trio refers to an eternal triangle, but things were more complicated than that. According to the professor who has written this up, Dooley actually had three lovers. There was the murder victim, Laura Foster, and Laura's cousin, Pauline Foster, and still another girlfriend named Anne Melton. And according to court documents from the time, all four of them were infected with syphilis. There's plenty more about this story available online. Here's how the Kingston Trio told it.
2: Throughout history, there have been many songs written about the eternal triangle. This next one tells the story of a Mr. Grayson, a beautiful woman, and a condemned man named Tom Dooley. When the sun rises tomorrow, Tom Dooley must hang. your head, Tom leave hang down your head and cry, hang down your head, Tom leave poor boy, you're bound to die. I met her on the mountain, there I took her life, met her on the mountain, stabbed her with my knife. Hang down your head, Tom, Julie. Hang down your head and cry. Hang down your head, Tom, Julie. Poor boy, you're bound to die. This time tomorrow, reckon where I'll be. Hadn't it been for Grayson? I've been in Tennessee. Oh, well, now, boy, hang down your head. Hang down your head. Tomorrow, reckon where I'll be. Down in some lonesome valley, hanging from a white oak tree. Hang down your hip, tongue, do leave. Hang down your head and cry. Hang down your hip, tongue, do leave. Poor boy, you're bound to die. Oh, well, now, boy down your head Tom do hang down your head and cry hang down your head, Tom do leave poor boy you're bound to die poor boy you're bound to die poor boy you bound, bound to die poor boy
0: you're bound to die the Kingston trio and Tom Dooley That's our show for today. I learned some things. I hope you did too. Now from George Gershwin, Patsy Klein, Dave Brubeck, Big Mama Thornton, the late Tom Dooley, and all the rest of us here at 45 RPM, here's wishing you a good day, a good week, and so long for now.